Hello and welcome, Sharon Dickens. I'm higher. Hello, Sharon. Sharon, any relation to trials? Uh, no, but I once did um, phone a call centre and I was trying to explain my second name and I said to her, as in Charles Dickens, and she said to me, who? And I realised at that point I was old. But yeah, no relation. You're old, but not as old as Charles Dickens, thankfully, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be talking about the important role that women have to play in the local church today. But before we do that, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. Um, There's not really a lot to tell. <clears throat> so I would say that born in Edinburgh, Scotland, I lived there most of my life. Got two grown-up kids. My oldest is 29. She's getting married this year. And so my life feels like it's full of conversations of weddings and dresses. Um, and then the rest of my life is either serving or telling my dog what to do and not being listened to. Um, I've been on, I think I've been a member at Nidri for more than 20 years, but I've been on staff for 16 and 10 of those with um, 20 schemes. Brilliant stuff. Your, your local church is part of a fantastic project set up in Scotland called 20 Schemes that you've mentioned. Tell us a little about that, Sharon. Yeah, I do love 20 Schemes. So we are the church planting ministry of my church, Nidri Community Church. Um, and so <clears throat> I don't know how much people know about Scotland, but about half, just under 48% of our nation would live in a scheme. I think in England, you guys call them housing estates and the states, they would be projects or favelas. Um, but the reality is that's nearly half my nation. And so when you start to look at how many um, of those those areas have a local gospel centre church? There would be hardly any. Um, so for my nation, half of them are not rejecting the gospel. They're just not hearing it. And that's proper sad. And so 20 Schemes was created to help plant and revitalise um, in the most needed and deprived areas of Scotland. Um, growing up the next generation of Indigenous leaders, that's the bit I get excited about. I mean, saving people... God saving people and then investing in them and seeing them uh, move into the role that God has meant them to be. And so my role in that is I'm the women, the, the director of women's ministries. So yeah, I love I love the ministry. I love um, seeing um, God uh, save and transform, and then I love seeing them, uh, our new believers, fulfil their full potential. Exciting stuff. And you've also got this fantastic music ministry. Are you involved in this in any way, Sharon? No. There's no, the only place I sing is in the congregation on a Sunday and sometimes right. in the shower, so no public. But we are, we're very blessed at 20 Schemes. We have a lot of people who are very gifted and 20 Schemes music is um, evidence of that. Saul Fenn is a very gifted uh, musician and composer. Um, I remember the first time we were traveling somewhere like in Cape Town, we were in, um, we were in uh, Belleville South and um, it was a Sunday morning worship and it was it was surreal because they started singing one of the songs that Saul had written um, and it, it blew my mind. Um, so, I mean, for people who've not checked out 20 Schemes Music, I, I do actively encourage you to check them out on the YouTube ch channel. But yeah, they are very talented. Me, no, don't sing a, don't sing a no. No, I'm public. Sharon, you must at least be able to sneak into the studio and play the tambourine or something, right? No, well, a, a tambourine, no. I actually would quite like that, to be fair. Um, yeah, no, not put me in front of a camera or a mic unless I possibly can avoid that. <laughs> well, we're we're very grateful that you've uh, you've you've let us do that today for this interview, Sharon. We both hold a view that is probably becoming more and more unpopular within the Western world. We're both complementarian. 
Tell us what that is, Sharon, and also, if you don't mind, briefly tell us the other two positions that people may hold when it comes to what women do within the church. And so, yeah, I would say that, I mean, I, in the book I talk about this really briefly um, and purposefully, quite briefly. Um, so egalitarian, I would think that is um, men and women are partners together in all aspects of ministry and life. And so they would say that all ministries are open to, um, and offices of the church are open to, what they would say is qualified church members, men and women. So gender should not and does not exclude anybody within the congregation from any roles, including elder, pastor or minister. And in complementarian, which where we would sit, um, I would say that, again, that means men and women are absolutely equal, um, but have been created for different roles. So I think that um, for us, any ministry is open to us, except for, I mean, the exception would be elder pastor, which I, I believe is only open to qualified men. And so women can serve in many and diverse roles, even in, in, in full paid ministry. And then there would be hierarchical, and there's a massive spectrum with all of them. And so for some of the guys, I would say men and women are created with uh, for, to, to operate in different aspects of the church. And so I, sometimes I've come across places where women can't speak or uh, within a church or be elders or deacons or serve communion. They're not allowed to lead or, I mean, again, like I say, even speaking a church service, they would see their roles, particularly within women and children. Uh, uh, and some would go as far as to, um, I have met some guys who have I've said that women can't write things. They wouldn't read a commentary that a, a woman would draw, or even women can't be in secular forms of leadership. So no women in government. Um, I think that's a massive spectrum. I mean, all of them are a massive spectrum. But I mean, for me, that's a broad stroke about what I think all three are. Thank you, helpful. Just in case we've got someone screaming at us through their laptop right now, biblically, how did you come to hold the position that you do? Um, I probably would have been two decades ago screaming at the laptop myself. Um, I think in reality, it's a really simple question to answer. I think it's biblical. I think that it's um, the Bible is very clear about what it says. Um, I realise the, the reality of it is that it's not palatable. And it might even be difficult for some people to um, to accept. But I firmly believe that's what the Bible says. I also believe for us that the Bible is supposed to help us interpret our worldview and our narrative instead of us allowing our worldview and narrative to interpret to interpret the Bible. And so I think we, I think far too often it's round the wrong way. And so for me, it's a really simple answer. It's biblical. There's times where what is biblical is difficult. That doesn't mean that I chuck it out. I just have to work it through. Yeah, yeah, so good. So what does being a complementarian look like in practice, Sharon? I get this question asked a lot, and I actually don't even know how to answer it. And the truth is that um, beyond the obvious, like the in our context, there's there's roles that are open to, um, that are closed and, and just for men, the elder pastor. Um, every context is different. So every church is different. Their ministry is different. The way that they serve is different. The need that they have is different. And so I find it quite difficult to answer that question um, in a way that would meet everybody's needs. Um, yeah. I mean, there's. I think what I would say is that in many churches and, and all churches, there's significant ways that men and women are equipped by God. I mean, we've been given gifts, after all, um, to serve our local church. Um, 
And I think we need to do that. And if I'm being really honest, I get quite frustrated at this. And Mez always laughs at me when I do that. But I get frustrated because we spend so much time talking about that 2% of stuff that we're not allowed to do, which is not just women that are not allowed to do it. I mean, if you take the average congregation, the chances are there's only four guys that are elders, two of which are pastors. So men and women are not, not all men are called to that role also. Um, and so that in my head, we spend so much time talking about that that we forget to look at and spend time on thinking through um, how we can utilise, um, train and equip um, our, 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 church wem- our church members, including women, to serve our, our, our local church much better. Yeah. So I don't know how to answer it well. Yeah. Um, no, you, I think you have. That's a, that's a good point. Well made, Sharon, to be fair. You've written in your new book, Unconventional, which, by the way, is absolutely brilliant. Really, really love it. Thank you. That when you get a conference, uh, when coming off a platform, there's always usually a queue of people wanting to get advice on starting a women's ministry within their local church. Why and how have we forgotten how to do this? Um, I thought, yeah, I think the reality is that in most churches, there'll be some form of really good... um, informal women's ministry going on I think um, when it comes to formal ministry I don't know that we have forgotten it and so I don't know that we have I think what we might be is maybe um, apprehensive or scared um, to take on uh, the the task of looking at what formal uh, women's ministry looks like in our context I don't know that we really have forgotten it Um, I think it is happening it's just not formal and I think um, the, the reasons that we're doing, not doing the formal stuff for far more complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without a plan, I think it's fair to say that in a lot of situations, the pastor's wife is often tasked with overseeing women's ministry. But that can be really unfair, can't it? You can't just assume that they're gifted in that area or have the time or the will to do it. Is that a fair reflection of what you found, Sharon? Um, so I think the short answer would be yes, but I'm assuming you want more than that. Um, I think the reality is, let's be honest, if you think about the UK, like we have this really bad habit of doing buy one, get one free. We think that we get the pastor in and what we get is we get this free, the free service of the wife to come in and we expect a lot from her. And so she's supposed to be the one that unrealistically, whether it is fair or unfair, it's, it's an unrealistic expectation. And whether it's a voiced expectation or not either, it's there that we expect them to take on anything that remotely looks like women's ministry and lead it. Then if there's new believers, we expect them to do their Bible study. If women are struggling, we expect them to take on the role of getting alongside them. She's expected to be hospitality, show hospitality to her congregation to support her husband and what he does. And then the chances are she's got a family that she's supposed to be looking after. And because, let's face it, in the UK we pay our clergy so less, she's probably working in some way, shape or form part-time. Um, and in between all that, she's she's stuck in a place that could be I like um, fueled by um, unspoken expectation, unrealistic views of who she is, um, and and it's a it's a lonely place to be. And so for me, I, I don't think that's realistic or fair. Um, at Twenty Schemes, we don't do that. We don't assume it's buy one get one free. And so every wife that um, so if we have a ministry wife or, I mean, we have had um, for women's workers, it's been the other way around. And we've never assumed that she's going to come in and take on a women's worker role. 
Um, only when she she is keen and uh, wants to. Now that doesn't mean that the wife has no service to play because she's a good church member. But there's no unrealistic, unsaid expectations laid upon them. Um, that quite frankly is oppressive and like I mean, crushing. I would think for any wife that's out there. So yeah, no, I think it's unrealistic and unfair. Yeah. I can see those job vacancies you've got advertised at the moment, Sharon, suddenly having lots more applicants <laughs> flooding through on Monday morning. <laughs> How do you create a robust women's ministry that teaches, equips, and cares for women in a congregation without it becoming cut off from the rest of the church? So you're asking a question that I took 5,000 words to write, 50,000 words to write, and still not <laughs> sure I did an eloquent job and how to condense that. Um, I would say, which is what I pretty much say everywhere at any conference, I say you say to all the pastors, we wrestle with the hard questions, we make a plan, uh, we're not afraid to review it, and then we get on and change it if we have to. And so yeah. um, some of it, I suppose what I'm saying is try and biblically work it out well beforehand and then keep working it out as you go. Um, yeah. yeah, like yeah. I think that's what I try and say in the book, to be fair. Um I think most of us get stuck at the don't want to wrestle, not really sure how to make a plan, so let's just not do anything. Yeah, 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 so true. And do you find as well that people can get stuck in that planning stage and don't actually ever do anything because it's it just looks too... It's complicated. Yeah, and it's hard. Um, and so even the simplest of questions, so if you've got a robust um, care team, so we have a care team that's been established for um, oh, like 15 plus years now, um, and even the simplest of things you think is normal, like even taking your confidentiality. And when a woman's doing one-to-one -one with another woman, how much does the elders expect to know? I mean, are they expecting you to go back with every single thing? I mean, where is the line of uh, you can be totally confidential because that might be, um, and so we, we call it confidential within the remit. So ours is you can be absolutely confidential, but they know up front that if they tell me something where I think they're at risk of themselves or risking other people, or again, or a child protection issue, then then what they tell me is between us, not running to the elders. But actually, you have to work that out so that the elders know that you can be trusted, but they also need to know that when something really does happen and they need to know you're going to come. And so one simple thing which is integrally important, which is confidentiality. That's one part of the conversation, not the rest. And so it's hard, it's hard work. Um, and then that fear of if we create something, how can we make sure that it stays within the, 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 the framework of um, submission to the elders? Which I always find a little bit like frustrating that people think that you're automatically going to run off and be all independent. I mean, I don't think most women like want to damage congregations they want to serve they desperately need to be in there we just need to give the framework to do it but it's hard work and so I think that's the problem we get stuck in the plans because there's complex issues complex questions that they need to work through and sometimes we don't have the answers for them yeah yeah so good how can you establish a sound complementarian women's ministry without becoming egalitarian in disguise um, I think it's exactly the same answer. You wrestle with the questions, you um, plan, and you don't be afraid to review what you've done and change it if it needs to be. And so then you wrestle some more. And so I think that in Christian society, we're pretty 
I think we've got into a habit of once something's been created, that it's supposed to be like that for prosperity and nobody ever changes anything, whether it's meeting its goals or not. Um, and so we review and have done pretty much since the beginning of like our ministry. We, re- we review every year. In the early days, we used to re- review much earlier, um, but constantly asking questions. Are we doing it right? Are we getting it wrong? Is that truly what we meant it to be? Is it meeting our expectations? And so we did that. But my elders were absolutely awesome. Um, I've never met elders like this. I've been a Christian a long time. And they really actively wanted a women's ministry. Didn't really know how to create it, but were absolutely certain that it wasn't supposed to be tokenistic. So it was for real. It wasn't just placating us to give us something nice to do. I mean, they took it serious and and they invested it in. So they invested in us. Uh, they invested in training. And they invested their time. And they debated the 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 big questions as a congregation. They got us together on. Sunday evenings and they took us through lots of training um, uh, Bible studies um, all relevant to this issue while they were working out what women are like it looked like in our context and our congregation wrestled with this together and then when we established the women's ministry our elders they invited me to their elders meeting every week and we don't do this now but when we were establishing it it was every week and I'd come with a bunch of questions uh, it would be debated, there would be more questions, they'd wrestle with it, uh, they'd send me off to do stuff, and then the next week I'd come back with a bunch of, bunch of more questions. And so um, it was that real investment and that, that intention um, to take it serious and also see that we, ha- we had... Um, I, think it, I think what it was is they trusted us. Our elders, I mean, we would say it's a saying, they gave us enough rope to hang ourselves and we didn't. But they literally um, trained us, equipped us, prepared us and entrusted us to get on and do the job. And so for us, yeah, I, I think that's how you build it. You wrestle, you work it out, you wrestle some more. Um, and now it doesn't work like that. We only meet monthly, but yeah, at the beginning it was so helpful. Yeah, yeah all the questions you had, you just go, I've got like, I hadn't, sometimes I'd go and there would be reams of them. Reams of questions. It's the absolute opposite of ticking a box, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it was refreshing. I mean, I've been a Christian a long time, and so my my usual experience, and I, I don't say this is for every woman, is that they find strong, capable, and feisty, and what they automatically assume is you're that you're rebellious, and I'm not. Um, and so then they didn't know what to do with you, and I'm rubbish at making tea, and it was all right to do kids ministry when my kids were little, because that was a way I could serve. Um, but after that, there, there seemed no place. And I, I do feel that there's a lot of women that feel frustrated because God saved us for a purpose, um, to serve our local church. And there seems no place for us to do that. And our elders came in, particularly Mez, and was like, actually, I mean, even six weeks after he arrived, he started talking to me about um, being a community worker. I've had about 17 different job titles at church. Um but our elder, it wasn't, it wasn't tokenistic or just, it was for real. And it'd been the first time I'd ever really experienced that. Um, and so, um, which makes me sad. But um, also makes me quite happy in the sense that they gave us, they, they, they helped us fulfill our potential. Yeah, yeah, so good. It, it may seem like an obvious question, but what are some of the unique things that you can do as women together that would be unsuitable for a male pastor or elder to do? Um, 
I think the first thing that I would probably flag is I think unsuitable is a, not a helpful choice of words. But I know what you mean. And so I think the reality is that if we are proper Titus 2 in, um, and investing in and doing proper discipleship with someone that is um, not an hour a week uh, Bible study in one of the fancy coffee shops, but I mean that real life on life, 24-7, living with, invested in, sharing your life with them, that is really intimate and that is intentional. And so instead of um, unsuitable, I would probably say unwise. Um, I think spending time, that kind of intimate um, length of time with where women should be a woman. I mean, Titus was pretty clear. Women, older women teach a younger woman how to be a godly woman. So that kind of investment, I would say, I would believe that it's, it's a older women in the faith teaching a younger woman how to grow up in the faith. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't think that guys have an integral part to play. Um, but I think when it comes to that investment of time, that intimate investment in time, and women's life should be women. So I would say that's the unique thing. Yeah, yeah. And what does a healthy women's ministry look like on a day-to-day basis? So for me, I think a healthy women's um, women's ministry should be one that um, is in submission to the elders and is a gift to the church. And so the foundation of our women's ministry would be that we see ourselves as uh, we serve our church. We're not events-driven, um, although we do events, but it's not what drives us. And um, for us, it would be the discipleship. Everything our our whole women's ministry is based on that the discipleship relationship. Yeah, and everything comes from that. It actually makes me one of this. It's it's one of the saddest things I see. So you can go to many um, if you can go to events all your life, and it's the saddest thing to see a woman who's been saved for forty years and has been to every event on the planet, but is still a baby Christian. And that doesn't, that's not a healthy women's ministry. Um, that's not one that serves the church. Um, so it's the, the saddest thing you see is this eternal baby. So age doesn't mean mature. Um, and so f- for me, I think the best investment, healthy healthy women's ministry is one that serves the church um, in the way that it disciples new believers into to, to growing in maturity so they can go on and serve their local church. Yeah. And you speak about this in the book as one another in in one-to-ones. So good. Tell, tell us all about this, Sherry. So they're basically the same thing, um, just different ways. So we would all have a one-to-one relationship. So now do we have a care team of six, but all six women don't see every single woman in our congregation. That's just, if you're talking about real investment, um, you can't invest in like 30 women really, really well, but you can invest in one or two women really, really well. Very intentionally. And so what we have done is, so one woman invests in one or two women and we encourage them to invest in one or two women and it flows down. And part of the reason that we've done this is we've created a framework um, where um, older women invest in a younger woman and then that, that younger woman invests in someone who's, so you've always got someone to go back to. And so we would call that one-to-one. And so if I was one-to-one in someone, usually a new believer, um, I would invest in their life, I would hang out with them, but we would do a formal time where it would be like Bible study, book study, and then we have these accountability questions. We've got 17, we started with 10, but we've got 17 now. And so we ask all the questions. Um, you have to ask all the questions. You can't assume what's going on in somebody's life. 
And so we sit in the beginning, we would explain to someone, this is new, this is why we're asking them. We ask their permission, we make them understand what confidentiality looks like. And most of our women are really honest. A few, um, straight up and want to grow. And so part of that is they, they want, they desire to have that relationship in their lives. Um, and so for us, that's what one-on-one looks like. One another in is someone who's a much more um, equal relationship. So um, Mezzi's wife, Miriam, is my one-to-one. And so we um, would one another each other. And so we've done that for 16 years. And um, we don't ask all 17 questions because, like, we're at the stage where I don't need her to ask me them. I just go and I say to her, actually, here's where my issues are. This is what I'm struggling with, and this is what I need to be dealing with. I understand. She will call me out. There'll be times where she'll and she'll say, "Right, is this your issue with?" And I'm like, "Actually, you're right." And so we hold each other accountable for for where our lives are. And so the one another end would be much more mature women speaking to a mature woman, and then um, one to one would be an, uh, a tightest two older women speaking in a younger woman's life. Yeah, I know we're going to get asked for some of the comments. Are those 17 questions publicly available anywhere, Sharon? Yeah, they absolutely are. If you sign up to, um, so 20 Schemes Women, if you sign up to, what is it, women at 20schemes.com and say, sign me up for your prayer letter, they'll send you our accountability session and the 17 questions as a PDF download for free. Excellent. Yeah, they're great. I mean, we. I'd like to say we... Um, invented them but we didn't I, I, I assume we found them somewhere else and elaborated on them yeah well we'll make sure that we find the link for that and we'll put it in the description wherever you're watching or listening to this interview thank you oh, for that they're in the book in the appendix they might ah, be in perfect the how did I miss that yeah I'm sure there's a list of them in the book somewhere I can't remember if it's in the chapter or if it's in the appendix well another reason to buy the book then Sharon that will be <laughs> any of those the links that yeah, the link to that would obviously be in the description as well. I'm really interested practically to, to sort of um, get, an, get a, a, an idea of how you guys do this. So when you guys get a new visitor, what does the process look like in terms of a welcome, getting that person settled in and then potentially into some sort of discipleship program like you've been speaking about? Yeah, I think that's a bit of a weird question, but I can't work out why. Um, we're not really big enough to have a welcoming committee. Our church is quite small. And so new people kind of stand out. And our churches, um, our, our congregation are really intentional. And so they'll do hospitality and welcome new believers really well. So we don't have like a s- specific format for that. Um, we don't do one-to-one or one-anothering with anybody who's not a church member or working towards church membership. Um and in discipleship, we it's not it's really rare for someone to walk through our door and go, I'm a new believer, I need to be discipled. Um, I think in 16 years that's kind of happened once. And the rest of the time it's a long-established relationship that somebody's had that's brought them to church. Um, God's miraculously saved them and then part of the process is we start like discipleship. And so there's no like a set format or it's not like someone needs to fit in a program. It's just things that are there that when they become a church member it's part of who we are. Um, or when they become a believer, it's part of what they do. And so, right, you, yeah, yeah, I don't know how to answer it. So it's a lot more organic. It just it just happens because it's part it's, of the DNA. Yeah, I think it's that's a way to say it. It's definitely just part of the DNA of the church. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Sharon, how important is commitment when it comes to belonging to a church? 
Um, I find this a really important question. Um, I think that God's very clear. Um, I think the trouble is in our society, we spend a lot of time thinking our, our faith with God is personal when it's it's really not. Um, our faith with God may be personal in the sense that we have a personal relationship with God, but it's not in isolation. Um, we're supposed to belong to, be active members of a good, solid, uh, Bible-believing church. Um, and I don't mean like a surfaced skimmer who comes and is just served or a live streamer. I mean, actively in being involved. That's why God, um, as well as the head of the church, but also gave us gifts to serve that local church. Um, So I think that um, the trouble is that many of us become consumers. Um, And so, yeah, for me, I think it's super important. It's where we learn to love each other. It's where we learn uh, iron sharpens iron. It's where, like, God brings our sin issues to the surface and helps us to deal with conflict well. It's where we learn to grow up in the faith and having Christ transform us as we interact with that, the, the family that he's put around us. And so I think it's it's seriously important that someone is part of um, a, a local church and not just part of, but responsible, like a responsible church member. We have responsibilities to each other as well as uh, to Christ. And so, but I think, Nowadays, it's just far too easy when someone cheeses you off just to go somewhere else. I try. Um, Fee transfers, like we just move on. And the reality is, in that complicated situation or whatever it is, God is trying to teach us about something in us that needs to be changed. And so we miss out the the growing and the maturity that he wants us to come to. So, yeah, me, I think it's super important. So good. And on that subject, you know, in any role where your people facing, like you've just been saying, it's at times going to be messy and hard, isn't it? How do you protect yourself from potential heartbreak with people, Sharon? I think that's the bit that bothers me <clears throat> about this question. It's to protect myself from potential harm. Um, because when I thought it through, the reality is um, what we're asking about is investing in someone's life because Christ loved us. Now, Christ did not protect himself from potential harm uh, and everything that was sacrificially given of his life to save us. Yet we think it feels like it's one of those boundary questions where we have to have boundaries in life to protect ourselves. And I, I don't see that how, I don't see that as how Christ describes love. And so when we are investing in someone's life, what he's asking us to do is love them like he loved us. And so I'm probably not going to answer that question well because maybe what folk want me to hear is, well, if you do X, Y, and Z, this will save you from getting hurt. The reality is if you invest, truly invest in someone's life and love them, when they are hurt, you will hurt. When they walk away from faith, you'll be devastated. Um, They'll be invested in your life and it'll be messy. And there's nothing that you can do to prevent that. Um, and if you want to prevent it, then you miss out on the glorious relationship that God would have wanted you to have. So and, good, Sharon. I'll, I'll have a I'll have a strong word with the person that come up with that question. Okay, was that you? <laughs> I'm sorry if I was so front front No, but you're so true. You're so so true. I think I was probably coming from from an angle where. When when you invest and you you walk alongside somebody and you love somebody and you see them walk away from the faith, it's just heartbreaking, isn't it? And, yes. And, but like you say, 
the way that it's framed is we're looking at ourselves rather than actually we're going to go through that, aren't we? And and it's not what we. Can I think about. you can. I think you can help. I think there's ways to help yourself through the heart heart heartache. I mean, that's why we have good one to one. That's why we have team. That's why we have why we have each other. They can, our congregations point us continually to Christ. Um, so true. And we need that. Like, I mean, God tells us we're going to suffer. Um, and we need that. We need constantly being reminded who Christ is. But I don't think that we can avoid the, the investment if we truly want to see people grow. So good. You're very wise, Sharon. It's almost like you've been doing this for decades. I have been doing it for decades and I'm not remotely wise. I'm one of those folk that's just old enough to know that um, I just know nothing. I think the older you get, the more you realise how little you know. We mentioned earlier that your church is located in Nidri, which is a place that has some unique challenges, doesn't it, including social and economic issues. How do you guys discern between helping people practically and spiritually? I think probably one of the most interesting words in that question is discern. And I think that's the trouble is that I think for a lot of people, when we are helping people, we don't discern at all. We just do. Yeah. Um, and I think the trouble with that is help that has not been thought through could potentially harm the person you want to care. Um, and I find this probably one of the hardest things to wrestle with. Um, my life has been, my career, if you like, has been around a community. I used to work with um, a lot of frontline um, homeless services, Christians and not cr Christian. Um, and so for years I've done uh, what we would now call, I suppose, mercy ministry. We did done night shelters and food kitchens and um, all those um, moments of ministry that are very focused on a task. Um, and I read this most amazing book by a guy called, um, what's he called, Brian Fickert, called When Helping Hearts. Um, and he looks at um, biblical principles for helping people and he comes up with three, which is relief, um what is it? It's relief, restoration, and re relief, rehabilitation, and then development. And I think he gives us a lot of chew over. And I realised it was like this one of those life shattering moments that I spent a lot of my time helping people with relief and never moving them on to rehabilitation and development. And it's a bit like dis discipleship. It's that keeping them always in that baby mode without helping them grow up. And so I think, I think that we should help. I think that there's lots of ministries that are out there that are amazing. I think any help without thought and a thought through plan has the potential to harm the person you care for and yourself. And so I think discern is a great word. We just need to discern how we do it. And so for us, we don't, in Nidri particularly, we don't do, we do stuff. It would be far better for me to take someone to like a food bank um, and be their chauffeur and have 20 minutes where I um, make sure that I protect our relationship that we've got um, and have someone else be the service provider than it would be for me to um, be the service provider. And so we still help. We just help thoughtfully, I think, is what we try. Yeah, yeah, really good. And I'm sure we've both seen examples as well where churches can become so fixed in, in, in helping people that actually the gospel ends up getting Absolutely. lost in amongst all the action, right? It's all about the numbers that came through their door. Yeah. 
remember sitting in a meeting one day and the guy was going on about 6,000 people that had been through the door and, saved, uh, and, and helped. And I remember asking him, how many of them got saved? And he said, oh, I don't know. And I'm, I mean, I was quite devastated by that answer. Because um, yeah. I think we should help. There's a, I think we should. We see emergency need. There's that need for us to, to be helped. But the greatest need anybody has is, um, the greatest need anybody has is their salvation. And if we're not telling them the whole truth, then we're true. in their earthly need without even looking at their like eternal disposition. It's not helpful. Yeah, no, so good. So true. It's quite typical in a lot of churches for the responsibility to organise or serve to fall on a few people's shoulders. How do you guys get everyone involved? Um, Yeah, I I think it's in our DNA. I think the reality is for um, if you are investing in people and there's an expectation for them to serve, then they'll step up. Um, but I think that part of how we think it through is is different. And so when I'm faced with questions like that, I always want to ask. So I ask my girls all the time when we're talking about how they find the next generation to grow them up, to help their new believers to, to serve. I always say to them, are you expecting them to serve? Like, is there an expectation? Are you giving them room to serve? So do they look at someone and see these six capable women doing absolutely everything and there's no room for them to do anything. Um, and so I sometimes wonder if there's like lots of people in pews desperate to serve um, but think, why should I? Because they do far better. And then I think one of the things I always challenge our girls with is, well, how are you going to, like, what process have you got of spotting someone has a gift and then how are you going to invest in that and grow them up into that that service that you want to. And so I suppose that point is, are we um, making room for them to serve? Then how are you going to train them in that role? And so I ask my girls that as well. And then my third question I always ask them is, is are you facilitating their learning or doing it? And they're always like frustrated at this point because what they say is, it's far easier for me to just do this myself. And I'm like, yeah, it is. If you keep doing this themselves, they'll never. You, then you're never going to teach them to do it for you. And then, lastly, I always ask them, "Are you giving them space to fail?" And they're like, "Well, what do you mean?" And so we've got a really bad habit in the UK of only asking someone to serve who's arrived, like comes up with us these pre-organized gifts that have already been established and honed. But for a new believer, how are they ever going to arrive if you never give them the opportunity or treat, teach them? So. Anybody coming in here, like especially women's stuff, but anybody coming in here in ministry, there's room for failure. Like you can fall flat on your face. We're going to pick you back up again and dust you off and then let's get on with it again. It's not, doesn't mean that you're, you're a failure, just something never worked. And I think in, particularly in our context, um, failure's frowned upon. And so a lot of people are afraid to, um, to serve in case they might drop the ball. But like, who's perfect? We'll, we all drop the ball. We just need to teach them to pick it up and, and run away afterwards. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think that's part of your DNA. I think part of that is thought through. I think part of that is how are you raising up leaders? Um, I think sometimes we just think it's organically going to happen. Um, but I don't know if it really does organically happen. Yeah, so, so good. Everyone seems to be super busy these days, but everyone needs to eat. So I love the idea that you wrote about in your book about tithing your meals. Tell us about that, Sharon. 
Um, I'd love to tell you that it was my genius idea, but it wasn't. A story from Ms McConnell. <clears throat> when we were um, first training out in a team, like all those years ago, um, he really drilled this into our head. I think that we need to um, not serve harder, but serve smarter. Um, and so we all have time we can do stuff. But in the book, I was particularly trying to make the point of people say things like, I want to serve, but I don't have the time. And so my challenge in the book was actually who's ruling your time? Like if we are spending more time, I mean, I suppose the truth is, and I said this in the book, basically we make time for the things we really want to do, right? And so if we look at people's schedules and if they've got no room, then I would, for discipleship or evangelism, then I really would be questioning who's ruling that schedule, God or them. Um, And so that's the truth. The hard reality is we say things like, I've not got time. Um, but actually, like, we've got time for the stuff we want to do. And then if it is tight, then let's just be smarter. I've got to eat. Like, why can't I eat with somebody else there and have the convo at the same time? Like, in the moment, I've got, so I've got a little thing going on with some of the girls at church where I do this, we, we pray together. And so on a Monday and a Wednesday, one of the girls that is, I'm not their one-on-one, but I'm investing in, we just meet, we read um, we're working through um, Barbara Duig's book, Streams of Mercy. We do one of our devos. We share with each other's lives. We speak in each other's lives and then we pray. I mean, I've got to pray and read my devo anyway. Why should I not just invite somebody into that? So, yeah, serve smarter, not harder. Yeah, So good. So good. Having so much experience in this area now, if you could turn back time, what advice would you go back and give to yourself just starting out? I find this like one of those questions where like, what would you tell your younger self? And then you have That's a, right, yeah. reflective, a reflective moment. Yeah. And I think what I'd say to myself is um, stop wasting your time thinking about man's opinion and get on with fearing God. And then for goodness sake, stop moaning about inconsequential things that don't matter. It's not about you. That's what I would say to myself. Um, I spend too much time whinging about stuff and too much time feeding man that actually it was wasted anxiety that didn't need to be there. So good. Mic drop moment there. It's always good and easier to learn from other people's mistakes. Let's learn from some of yours. What are some ditches to look out for for anyone um, starting out or exploring women's ministry right now, Sharon? Um, I would say the biggest problem you're going to face is yourself and Christians. Right? I know that's a bit harsh to say. But it's the truth, right? When it comes to any ministry, what you've got is a bunch of sinners uh, trying to serve to each serve together, um, and you. I mean, it's just it's going to be difficult, going to be messy. So I would say keep sure accounts to each other, and when you're wrong and sinful, own it. Don't do the whole if I did this and offended you, because we all know that the reality is if you put an if in there, you did it. Um, the and and. St- Straight up, like, admit you're wrong, be re- be repentant and move on. And in all of that, like, die yourself and trust God. So when it comes to any ministry, what will get in the way is us and other Christians. And it'll be our sinfulness, like, bashing off each other. Yeah. Like, that's what gets in the way. Yeah, yeah, so good. 
Sharon, this has been one of my favourite conversations for a long, a long, long time. We're going to go and take a quick break now before we come back. Sharon, I've got to ask you, this is probably the most important question for the whole interview. You've got the pleasure of working alongside Mez McConnell. I've got so much time for Mez. What is your best Mez McConnell story? Um, it's true. I have served with Mez and Miriam for a long time, um, 16 plus years. Mez is like <clears throat> my annoying little brother that is the boss of me. And so I do have some stories. Um, but I decided that um, oh, not, I'm not going to share a funny one, but I was going to go with what was probably my most defining one um, because it probably changed my mindset about who he was for a long time. I'd been a member at Nidri for ages before like Mez came and then he started talking to me really quickly about becoming on staff. And so when I started six months after he arrived, he came in September and I came on staff in the April, I didn't really know him that well. And so when he always describes our early meeting, he tells this absurd story that has, well, we both remember it differently. And so he says this, I said to him, I haven't made my mind up about you yet. And he says to me back, that's all right, I've not made my mind up about you yet. And then anyway, <clears throat> having that in the back of your mind, about six weeks in uh, starting the, the rollout charge, I can't even remember what he'd done, but he'd been a plank. But, I mean, it was insignificant. It wasn't like it was one of those memorable moments. But what I do remember is afterwards he came and he sat down and he um, outrightly apologised for it, called it out as sin, um, absolutely took um, a responsibility for it um, and then made it right before he finished the meeting. And I remember sitting there being quite awestruck. I've been a Christian a long time by this. And it made me sad to think that I'd never heard a pastor do this. Like, I'd never heard a pastor admit that they'd made us... I mean, it was a sinful error. It wasn't even significant. But he'd admitted it outright and publicly. And I thought through in that moment that, like, legit, that was the, the moment that I knew for certain what I thought of. Like, for me, that was, like, the, the, the defining moment where I made up my mind. Um, I, I'm okay with this guy with integrity that it's not afraid to admit that he's not, like, perfect, that he's infallible, and that there's moments where he could be a, a plank because that guy's more likely to show me grace when I need it. And so, yeah, that would be my my, um, <clears throat> my memory, my, my, my defining story. So good. And you've worked with him for 16 years. Uh, my follow-up question feel like is, have you, ever seen him, have, have you ever seen him without a beanie on? Yeah, this is, I have seen him without a beanie, and he does have hair. He does, does he, really? Yeah. <laughs> Sharon, thank you so much for your time. It's been it's been so good catching up with you and, and, and hearing your heart and, and reading your book as well. Really recommend it. Um, unconventional. There's going to be a link in the description below. But before we let you go, do you have any closing thoughts to make sure that you let everyone know how they can keep in touch with work that you're doing as well? Um, I would say if anybody wants to check out 20 Schemes, best place to do that is on the, the, the 20 Schemes website, www.20schemes.org. If they want to find out anything about information, there's an information section, all the plant, tree vitalizations, women's ministry. They can find out how they can pray. They can find out how they can uh, come and serve with us. And they can find out how they can support us and and, and give the, the, to the, the, the ongoing ministry. So, yeah, absolutely do that. If anybody's interested in women's ministry particularly, then sign up for the, the 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 prayer letter it comes out every month we do a mixture of uh, stories sessions training everything that's out there so yeah women at 20schemes.org send them a 
Dot.com, send them a, a, an email and say, I want to join the, the prayer letter, sign up to it, and every month they'll get stuff flying through. So those two things, the website and then the women at 20schemes.com, sign up for both. Um, it's the way it goes, the way you keep in touch, find out what's going on. Excellent. We're going to make sure that both of those things are in the description below. Thank Sharon, you. thanks again for your time. Thank so you good. Appreciate it. Thank you for making it as, as less painful as possible. Um, I was apprehensive starting, but I appreciate you being kind to me.